Marvin, 2020 really has been quite an interesting year. To say the least, right? We've lost Kobe. We've entered a pandemic. We're grappling with the numerous murders of unarmed Black people and countless other things that have really kind of thrown 2020 for a loop. Yeah, honestly, and this really is a moment where racism, other inequalities are in the spotlight and more people are truly beginning to recognize the longstanding systemic issues that we've been facing. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because it's not like we, you know, have been blind to these things, but, you know, the ideas of inequality and social injustices have really been deprioritized in so many facets in our lives and, our, and in our world, particularly in our world of innovation and design. It's so rarely addressed. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And I think that in general, we as a club believe that necessity breeds innovation and addressing these issues through a lens of innovation and design is absolutely necessary, but it's also necessary to take a closer look at the diversity in the innovation and design space. I'm Marvin Harris. And I'm Hannah Anoche. And this is a special producer's episode of Off the Beaten Pod. Brought to you by the Kellogg School of Management's Innovation and Design Association. Marvin, this is a topic that we've both thought a lot about. You know, we've had a lot of conversations about this, and we even decided to write an article about it over the summer. Given what we wrote in the summer and really just what's happened since, what are your personal observations regarding inequities and inequalities in the innovation and design space? You know, there are many, but, you know, I can point to my career first. So I started it really in commercial real estate, where I worked with organizations to really design both physical spaces and experiences to best meet their employees' needs. And the most startling observation for me has been how senior leaders across many different organizations and industries were often blind to solving the unmet needs of their more marginalized employee groups. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That's really interesting. I think for me... It's been kind of similar. I think oftentimes we get blinded by the needs of the majority. And of course, it's very important to design for those needs. But then the folks at the margins are left with the scraps. And sometimes I think it's more interesting to sort of invert that and think about the folks on the margins first in order to create something that can actually work for most people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this summer has really kind of brought that idea to the spotlight where folks who are considered to be marginalized were kind of thrown into the spotlight with the murders of unarmed Black people, really sparking a national conversation about what it truly means to be anti-racist. Yeah, and I think for me, this is the first time I've seen the term anti-racist and anti-racism just fully in the spotlight across so many different parts of my life, that's been pretty powerful. And as organizations have publicly committed to anti-racism activism, I think now's a perfect time for designers to really grapple with what it means for transformative innovation to be inclusive for everyone. Yeah, which is why we put together our thoughts about the five ways that designers and innovators can challenge anti-Black racism in their work. 
Yeah, so I'm just going to start with the first that we wrote about. So the first one is to understand the design of anti-Black systems. So taking action begins with the admission that systems within our society that generate and sustain oppression are built by design. There's a number of books out there that people have now been talking a lot about and hopefully actually reading. For example, The Color of Law, which tells the tale of historical factors around housing inequalities and how that also bled into issues with generational wealth and disparities in that sense. But all of that was really built by design. So I think the first thing is to really understand that structural inequality in healthcare, housing, education, and other systems that have defined Blackness as marginal. And sort of building from there, one example that we pulled out of uh, a group that is actually really using this understanding to um, inform their work is the Creative Reaction Lab. This group, they employ a model that catalyzes Black and Latinx youth to design interventions that will dismantle that structural racism. And one thing that they did that I thought was really cool was in September of last year, they convened a group of 25 Black and Latinx youth to develop interventions to address gun violence in their region. I thought this, this theory of change really serves as a model for all designers, just pushing our problem-solving methods to incorporate those that you know are actually affected, to incorporate actual Black people in this fight to, to dismantle broken anti-Black systems. Yeah. So, you know, once you actually understand that systems are by design, you know, the second point that we kind of talked about is really how do we challenge empathy bias in the design thinking process? So first of all, empathy is really just the ability to see the world through other people's eyes, you know, feel what they feel, experience things as they do. And it's actually the first and most important fundamental step of the design thinking process. However, our ability to empathize is oftentimes it's biased by our personal connections, our beliefs, and our perceptions. An important current example of this is actually in our healthcare system and the disproportionate impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on Black communities. An empathy-led approach would have designers deep dive with COVID-19 patients, discover how they feel about the quality of care and resources available or lack thereof, and design solutions that actually prioritize their individual needs. However, it's actually important to go beyond just humanizing their experience, but also really confront those personal biases that leave us blind to the broader policies and narratives that actually support such a racist system. So simply asking the question, you know, why are black and brown people disproportionately affected in the first place, right? Doing so will actually reveal insights that yield more equitable solutions. Yeah, I think that piece was really great. And I think it's also interesting to think about your own privilege and the different sources of privilege and power um, that you have in order to ground yourself before you even try to have that empathy for another group. I think it's really important to know what your what your privilege is. And our guest speaker is going to talk a little bit more about that. So sneak peek there. But going into our third point. So our third point was we need to hold leaders in the innovation and design space accountable. So you mentioned that in your past experience, you noticed the lack of 
diversity and, and lack of inclusive thought. And that really is because as we've seen through a number of different articles, presentations, and conferences that over the years continue to address that there's a lack of diversity in the design world, let alone inclusion. That's just diversity, which is the first step. This gap is still extremely stark. You know, many of the top design firms remain predominantly white with, with few black members on staff, even when diversity has been shown to improve business performance and improve even levels of, of innovation. So as practitioners, we all bring our own unique perspectives on the table based on our own different life experiences and all in all just benefit from the ability to share those perspectives with our team and also with our end users. So it's important to hold folks in this space accountable so that we can recognize, employ, and amplify the perspectives of Black designers by actively building out those diverse teams or even building out that, that pipeline, right? Like thinking about design education and then ultimately strengthen the scope and creativity for more impactful outcomes. Yeah, and it's, all of this is to say that it's not easy, right? Holding innovation and design leaders accountable can be a very tough task. Uh, but, you know, our, I think our fourth point is probably the most accessible for everyone, right? Take a page out of a comic book. What does that really mean? So we talked a lot about Afrofuturism in our piece, and it really is a practice that allows us to reimagine a better collective future through engaging and imagining um, a world informed by Black culture. Uh, Black Panther is a great example of this. It combines science, technology, history, philosophy, all that Afrofuturism enables. You know, the comic and the movie feature technology that really one could only dream of, right? Expanding kind of our view of the possible and allowing us to flex our creative muscles in a fresh way. I think Afrofuturism really can thus be used to support design of inclusive technologies, services, and systems by centering instead of ignoring the Black experience. Yeah, I just, you know, I remember when Black Panther came out, it was such an incredible moment and it lasted for so much longer than even, you know, it was out in theaters, everyone, you know, screaming Wakanda forever. <laughs> and just like, you know, like the technology, it was all so cool. And it was so awesome to just like have, you know, so many forms of Blackness and Black culture celebrated by everyone in a way that felt really genuine and, and beautiful. And yeah, I definitely think like thinking beyond our reality is a really cool way to, to design more interesting products and services around folks that are marginalized. So yeah, I think that was an awesome point. And the last one that we talked about was the importance of co-designing and co-creation. So you kind of talked about this before when we're thinking about being empathetic and incorporating folks that we're designing for within the design process. And so design thinking, design innovation, design research is really rooted in the practice of ethnography, which is the practice of observing and studying the end user in context. And so while that has proven to be an amazing source of insight and sort of the foundation to many different innovations, it can often be problematic, you know, when the group that is doing that research is completely different than the group that they are researching. And when the only interaction is you observing this group in their natural context, 
but also not then incorporating them in the rest of the process, I think that can lead to some gaps um, and some misses. So ultimately, the traditional process can leave the end user out of the most important and impactful parts of the design process, which can perpetuate blind spots <laughs> that exist outside of the community. So in order to combat anti-Black racism in this process, designers should both center those voices in the process and collaborate with community stakeholders to actualize the solution. So what that actually looks like is you can continue doing the ethnographic research because it is a powerful tool but then also making sure that you're engaging with those community stakeholders, you're engaging with the end users, even if they are students or children, their opinion matters, and having them work with you and, and have co-design sessions where everyone is sitting at the table and able to sketch out what that end solution might look like. So an example of a firm that does this pretty well is a firm out in Miami called Kertwang. They're a design agency focused on alleviating challenges related to poverty. And they routinely practice co-design by centering and building for low-income populations. And we also detail a recent case study in the article where we talk about how they were focusing on increasing earned income tax credit claims in Miami. And they, you know, throughout the process really did work with that end user beginning with those ethnographies, but also continuing with iterative user input throughout the design process, and then returning back to those end users as they sought additional feedback. Yeah, I love the work that Kurt Wang is doing. I think they really showcase the impact that really comes from co-creating with the end user and kind of what innovation can, can come from that. And, you know, while we're certainly not experts on all of this, there are a few other organizations, in addition to Kurtzwing, actively engaging in equity design and working to correct these power imbalances through design that we've been talking about. We're so excited, actually, to be joined by Professor George A., former designer at IDEO and current co-founder and director of innovation at the Greater Good Studio, to talk more about what ethical design looks like today. All right. So, hi, George. It's great to have you today. Can you just share with our audience a little bit about your background and what you do at Greater Good? Sure. Hi, my name is George. I'm the co-founder and director of innovation at Greater Good Studio. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Our studio is exclusively focused on working in the social sector. So that means we work with nonprofits and foundations and government to try to work on complex social issues that those organizations face. Uh, so typically what that means is that um, an organization might come to us with some scenario where a population that they're advocating for, protecting, serving in some way, has needs that might be currently addressed through whatever programs or services they might provide. Let's say like an after-school program might be serving students in a school. And that client might then come to us and say, there seems to be an opportunity about serving them in a new way or in a better way or some other way that we currently do. Can you help us understand what those needs might be? And that's usually when we come in. We'll help an organization maybe better understand the needs of the population they're serving. Yeah, that's very interesting. And of course, we know that you kind of do that through uh, a very collaborative process. I'm wondering if you can kind of walk us through how you actually incorporate ideas of equity and inclusion in your process. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of it is is recognizing partly not only how we might do a methodology around human-centered design or the idea of like listening to people might give you better insights. That's just like a basic premise. But I would argue that part of the reason why we think it's so important the way we do it is to recognize who has been listened to in the past for so long, what influence have those people's voices had on the situation that we're looking at now, and how might we uh, proportionally and, and, and retrospectively change how we respond with respect to how little has been done for this group before. So you can't do this work, I would argue, without having some historical review in the past, because the historical review would often lead that an incredibly narrow band of humans have been listened to. Those individuals whose voices then get amplified shape the reality of everybody else around them. So in many cases, that has often been people who identify as white, having inordinate amounts of control and power over how the lives of everybody else around them might be impacted. So voices that have been underinvested, underheard, marginalized in the past, tend to have their voices completely attenuated through the process of social sector work. Yeah. So despite there being a number of organizations whose very job it is to be advocating for those individuals and those populations, I think there are still gaps in how those voices eventually pierce the insulation that exists to change how a new service might be delivered. So we often find that there's a lot of proxies and other types of approximations for what people need. So sometimes that could be in the form of a study that gets ready to say, turns out there's enormous racial wealth equity gap that exists between black families in America and white families in America. Great, now we know that. I don't know how you didn't know that before, but fine. We now know that to the dollar, it's like a $60,000 difference. Okay, who knows? Now that you know that, now what do you do? Okay, do you change the policy? Have you changed how lending rates change? Have you changed how actual training of, let's say, a, uh, a member of the insurance industry or a member of the mortgage industry changes their training around how mortgages gets lent to black and brown families differently right. than a white family? So somehow, despite new knowledge around these gaps, we still have these scenarios. So our job in many cases is to work out, okay, let's go from perhaps no knowledge to new knowledge, fine. But let's take whatever knowledge we have and turn it into a thing. So turning into action, a new behavior, a new program, new service. And I would argue proportionally make it different with respect to how it's been treated in the past would be how you design an equitable approach. It's not just that you should design because it seems unfair. We're long past being unfair. It has been deeply unfair for centuries. Can we be reparative? <laughs> you know, how can we tap into something that would be restorative even to get to a level of where we are back to even just getting to zero as opposed to minus a million, which is how it's been, I think, for a lot of families in, in this country. So when you think about how programs and services typically designed, we tend to think about the middle of a bell curve and who is centered in the middle of their bell curve tends to be the people you would see in commercials across all primetime TV. Those people are only a narrow slice of human existence, yet they represent tons of people. We would think that if you really wanted to start looking at how anybody other than the very center gets served, which again, proportionally actually is not that many, we need to look at places beyond the middle. And when you look into the lives of those individuals, you'll see a very different reality very different kind of America that for, for a lot of people has been happening for, for, for decades, but it's mm -hmm. just somehow not apparent, at least not apparent to those who could make systemic change. 
Yeah, I think that's such an awesome point. And something that we touched on a little bit in the article is like this inclination to sort of run fast and really just address the folks at the middle and, and disregard people at the margins. But can you talk about just how do you tactically work with your team to sort of align on an agenda that is focused on the folks at the margins? Uh, well, some of it is, is amongst ourselves where maybe before we start projects, we try to actually even goose out of ourselves, like what biases do we already have about this population? What have we heard about this group? What did we grow up thinking about? Almost like a bias check. That seems so different than how do we get aligned with our client about what the project is about? Hmm. So it's one thing to sort of get our team aligned, but if the team is aligned internally, but the project is flawed and deeply corrupted, there's only so much you can do. So much of the challenge actually turns out to be pre-contract about how is this project framed? What is the logic? What is the, the thesis behind this very question itself? So for us, it's important that we kind of keep backing up the question further, further, further back up the chain to try to work out what is really going on here? Why are you asking us this project? Why are you asking us now? Like what is, what is in this current moment almost triggering you to call out for help? People are calling you right now because the, the sort of the heightened uh, conversation around the ever-present threat of, of death to black bodies in this country has not gone away. But mm. your awareness of it might have changed. Mm. And now you're calling us. Can we talk about that? How is it that you didn't know that this was happening for so long? Let's examine that for a bit. Can we talk about how long this has been happening and that you haven't been aware of it? And I think those questions can make people uncomfortable. Great. But your willingness to really do the inquiry, the internal work, is for us a really big sign of whether or not we could do a project together. Yeah, I think that internal work is the most important, right? Because ultimately we're trying to ask the right questions, right? And to your point, it, you know, particularly in light of recent events, it has been mind boggling to, to listen to people kind of discover things for the for the first time right so it's almost a, a problem and a question within itself it's like how do you even address the, the fact that you didn't know right like let's unpack that first yeah and then move forward to a, a problem and a solution yeah i love how on linkedin i see a lot of people's uh, bios now start with i'm on a journey of awareness around white supremacy culture it's like yeah. great i'm so glad you are but i that's, have never seen that that's you haven't seen that oh my god i see that a lot now and that phrasing i'm on a journey is code for i just found out that black people have a much harder life than i, I do. just i just woke up i just woke up to 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 this or i can no longer ignore it it's like dude i'm thrilled for you but that means that there's there's a whole lifetime's worth of work in front of you. And I would argue most people just don't have the patience for that. I, and I think the rest of the team, have this feeling where you can't unsee it now. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, because I, 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 I mean, my lived experience is very particular to, to my race and my relationship to how my race shows up in white culture, that interpretation would leave me with a lot of opacity around what it's like to be black in America and certainly black to be, to be black in England, uh, which might have been the closest equivalent. And all that was completely oblivious to me. So now that I can't unsee it, which is how I'd phrase it, I've, I find myself constantly fascinated by this topic area. So to help people through their own self-discovery, I find that there's a lot to be learned together 
in learning what this might mean, because it might mean that there's a lot to undo. There's a lot of like old harm that we might have to be m making amends for. And I think one of the other things that's concerning about that self-discovery, especially when you think about the role of designers and innovators, right? Like if you're coming into a design process or using the design thinking methodology with that initial mindset, right, of not knowing, like how can you be successful really in that process? So it really kind of unearths the inherent kind of inequalities that are actually present in the traditional design thinking process. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's a um, one of the best ninja moves that designers ever pulled off was this idea that you cannot know a goddamn thing about anything and call it the mm -hmm. beginner's mindset. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that beginner's mindset covers up so many sins, and I say it with great anxiety because I know I've been complicit in using that excuse many times to say. I don't need to know a goddamn thing about this neighborhood and the, and the way in which it's been underrested or redlined in, in, in Chicago. I'm just going to begin my beginner's mindset my way through this. And I think that actually might work when you're working on a Starbucks mobile app. Like, who cares? Versus why, has, why might this neighborhood in Chicago have never had fresh produce in any discernible way until now? Could be a question that you might be underprepared for when you're going to use beginner's mindset, you know, because who you talk to for advice on this topic area might be racially biased. Who you then listen to going forward for check-ins for community members might be racially biased. Who you just assume has expertise in this topic area might be racially biased. And you wouldn't even know it because you're beginner mindsetting your way through the whole project. And I think it's, you know, it's not inherent. It's, it's, it's something that can be worked on and, and improved. I'm curious, do you have any examples of who is, who is doing this right? Yeah, so there are, there are folks who we were lucky to be in community with, actually. So we just hosted something called the Restorative Design Conference uh, just mm -hmm. last Friday. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'd say that all of the speakers that we had on the panels from Rachel Dikas, who's a who's, um, professor at the uh, University of Illinois. She teaches design, but through a social work lens. Sara Fatada, who is based in the Bay Area, she speaks about design and trauma-informed design, but she's a design richer herself. Jennifer Rittner, who's a, like a legit academic, as opposed to mm -hmm. me, who's a pretend one. Uh, she's a writer <laughs> primarily. There's also Sadie Redwing, who's a design professor who speaks from the perspective of the of the Lakota tribe in, in the Dakota area. And then there's uh, Leslie Ann Noel, who teaches, I think, out of Tulane. Mm -hmm. And she, as a Trinidadian, as she spoke to me on the call around how, <laughs> this is so sad, she may not have really noticed, she said, around any type of impression of what being black outside of being in Trinidad was like until she got to Stanford. Like she wasn't aware necessarily that there was anything amiss until going into the epicenter of design thinking in the world was mm. started to, treat it, to be treated differently than she had been in any other part because she said, you know, this is her explanation. I don't know much about this, but she grew up in a, in a period of, of Trinidad where apparently being black and being powerful was just the norm, just like this is how you are. But to, to be treated differently in, in this established institution steeped in white culture, she started to see a different way in which people were, were seeing her. And so I would, look mm -hmm. to, I would look to some of those folks for, for uh, keep up with their social media to see sort of what, what they're doing. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I heard Leslie speak at an event for Black History Month, and she was really powerful.
I guess our last question is around what can we do as future designers, future innovators to establish a moral framework and or ethical guidelines as we're developing, as we're learning, and as we then go and practice out in the world? That's going to be hard to answer quickly. I, I would argue that actually I wasn't even aware that there was one, you know, to be fair. But the <laughs> idea that but the idea that there was one was not apparent to me at all. Mm-hmm. What I would have used earlier than that, certainly earlier than getting to a point where I'm teaching it, is just recognizing that there was an intuitive sense of what right and wrong might have been that gets beaten out of you as you become a working professional. Mm-hmm. I would argue that you have to be so conscious of having it slip away that it happens over time and it gets it happens through a modeling of behavior by your peers so i would be mindful that as you watch your watch and observe your peers in practice as the thing you you look at like this project comes across your desk you look and go that seems weird why are we doing mm. it like that but then you notice i look around and go why is nobody else noticing this you would be taught essentially through a simple modeling of behavior that what you read and saw is just your psychosis that is no big deal to anybody else. But it's because actually everybody else is doing the same thing, but they didn't say anything. Everybody else, I think, has the same inner voice that they've been told, shh, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And I would trust that as value more than I think your peers would give it credit, and certainly by your bosses. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of people who I think take their cues from people who are more senior, to say, well, this is how you're supposed to do things. But I would challenge you to discount them a little bit and trust your own gut a little more, as opposed to maybe the 1% you trust yourself and the 99% you get you get sort of default power to others. I would want to try to see if you could practice balancing that out a little more, because I think you actually might already know which way is up, but you uh-huh. are, you're getting regularly gaslit on a really like, you know, like microaggressions, like micro gaslighting, which is a I just term I made up, <laughs> is your acceptance that what you think is the right way around is wrong because everyone else around you isn't going to say it. So I would, if you can, talk about it with somebody who you can trust and confide in. I would encourage you to listen to that voice of yours and try to talk about it with somebody. You can talk to me. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> but that type of stuff gets, gets quietly beaten out of you over multiple years. And then yeah. you end up with a lot of people who are in senior positions who actually can't even tell anymore. So Wow. I think that's really powerful food for thought. But just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. I think you've given us a lot of great perspective. So <laughs> really appreciate your time, George. Of course. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thanks so much, Marvin. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. At its core, design is about problem solving. If we believe design thinking is the right tool to spark innovation and contribute to business growth, it must also be used to examine the same innovations, institutions, and mindsets that promote inequality. Design can be a powerful tool used to reimagine products, services, and systems to ensure they mitigate the causes of inequalities and racism. And having diverse populations part of the design process can contribute to a more equitable world. Some food for thought.